Let me start with a little bit of an intro before I read um, our scripture today in uh, 1 Corinthians 2. And uh, again, a pleasure to be here. I feel a bit far, too far away. Let me come a little bit closer. All right. So, yeah. So, by way of introduction of how do we, you know, how do we engage with the stuff that we are already learning and are going to continue to learn throughout the course of going through the Epistle of Corinthians. And I want to start by saying that there's times where you hear people unpack um, how they're going to deal with particular problems in their lives. And there are times I've been left scratching my head to, to figure out how they've used the gospel in order to come to that particular resolve. It seems at times where they don't really have a Christian worldview in which to, to kind of properly dissect what the problem is and, and deal with it in, in such a way which I believe is um, a Christian way. And, and no doubt, I've realized, even as I've done that, being a believer for a little while, that there are probably times where people have looked at me in my earlier Christian life and figured out, what on earth is this guy on? Is this the way he figures the world out? And again, it, it's, it's about, do we really understand the gospel? The gospel in which we stand. And again, it's about how we become mature in that gospel in such a way that it, it does indeed color the world in which we see it and how we see it. Having said that, I've, I've also realized, especially as you become a little bit older, that there was times when I, never, I didn't treat such people with the grace that they needed. But I've realized you have to be patient with people who are, as it were, coming to terms with, how do I put this into action? You know, it's not as straightforward changing one's mind as, as, as it were, like moving home. You know, picking up all the, the things that you've had and collected over the years and then moving it from one place to another place. That's not how you change your mind. And you can realize that there's a lot of things in which you can actually need to change because, again, especially if you've lived with one place for a long time, there's a lot of things. And obviously people have said how stressful moving can be. And so it is with yourself. When you've lived with yourself for so long, there's a lot of stuff that we need to change. There's a lot of things that we need to unpack and, 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 and start to say, well, how do I look at this through the gospel? When we consider the imperative of Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind, you can be a little bit disappointed and think, well, Paul, tell me how I do that. But if we've not been paying attention, Paul has actually shown you how to do that. Contemplate how bad of a person you really are. Then look at how good God is in the midst of your badness. And then live your life out in gratitude towards that goodness and that grace. And then, therefore, be renewed. You know, present yourself as a living sacrifice and be renewed by the transforming of your mind. So we may have missed the method because everything he has said 
in every single part of that letter up until that point is supposed to make that very clear. But that word transform holds a lot of weight. It holds a lot of weight because in it is the method in which we are expected to change our minds. It's not so much that we believe one set of facts over against another, i.e. like moving, like, all right, I, I chuck out all the old stuff I believe, and now I take on all these new things which I now believe. No, I don't think it's like that. Being transformed is like having the stuff that we already believe morphed into something different, transformed into something different, given a more complete understanding. In other words, we're never, because of common grace, in as much error as we could be. So how do we then take the things that we, we already believe and allow them to be transformed? You know, another way of stating this proposition even clearer is to say that God wants our old ideas, which have various grades of truth to them, to be fully open to revelation. And we're going to talk more about revelation later on. So that what lies um, that surround them, lies, errors, will give way to the full extent of truth. For example, we all believe in forgiveness. One way or another, we have an idea of, yeah, I know, you know, it's good to let people go. And you don't need to be a Christian to believe in forgiveness. But we also believe that that forgiveness must have limits. Peter, for example, in Matthew 8, 21, 35, gives that great response where he's able to be very generous. And he says, well, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Being incredibly generous, considering the culture that he was in. And Jesus tells him, no, 70 times seven. Or another way of saying it, as much as he needs. And it can be like that in the world as well. There's lots of good advice. And if we are only kind of like taking these people's advices neat, you know, I don't care who they are. It could be Oprah. It could be Dr. Phil. It could be some learned psychologist. Whoever it is you might go to. The Loose Women panel, whoever that might be this week. The Real Housewives, whoever they may be, choose your favorite state. <laughs> You're always going to get some glimmers of truth in whatever they say. But ultimately, just like Peter, they never go far enough in showing you how much grace you need to treat other people. How much you need to go the extra mile, which is exactly what Jesus shows him. Says, Peter, you haven't got, you haven't got it yet. So we come to our text. Now I'm in a dilemma because I've written about an hour's worth of material, even though I chopped it down, and I'm going to squeeze it into half an hour by the grace of God. <laughs> I say this having about to go through 
First Corinthians 2. I want to get the whole context so that when I, we run in and we can really kind of hit the text um, where it's at. So if you would join me, I'm reading from the ESV, but you can follow me, whatever translation you have. I want to read the text, I want to pray, and then I want to break this down and maybe use this introduction as a way of hope, open our minds to what it means to have revelation. So, today I'm going to be dealing with 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, 10b to 16. But I want to read from the beginning and then unpack that. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus, Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye have seen, nor ear have heard, nor the hearts of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful this morning that we have the opportunity to feast on your word. And when we say feast, we do literally mean feast, dear Lord, Father, that we may have life and have life more abundantly. Father, that we may be nourished, dear Lord, Father. No doubt we've come, many of us, with breakfast in our belly. But yet, Father, longing, Father, for something which our souls, dear Lord, Father, may also be nourished. And again, we thank you that your spirit does not disappoint, but gives, dear Lord, Father, in due season. We pray that, Lord, Father, that even as we go through these things, that again, your word will go through us. Even for us who may know these things very well, that, Father, we may walk away from this having a, a desire and a burden, dear Lord, Father, to, to, to engage with these things more fully. So, Lord, even as we unpack what it is to, to have a revelation available to us, dear Lord, Father, I pray that, you know, we will open ourselves up to that. Wherever we may be in life, that, Lord, Father, we will always seek to have a little bit more. And not just, beca just, because, not just because we want to be more intellectual, more smart, it's not about that, but that we may know you and may know you well, 
so that we may, again, um, live out our lives in gratitude in a way that, Lord, we know that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's have a catch-up about what we did. So we've been hearing for over the last couple of weeks of what's been happening in chapter 2. So in, in verses 1 to 5, Paul is asking his original, his original readers, obviously the Corinthian church, to recall the man of the ministry to them when he first came to them. He says, think back to how, when it, how it is when I came to you. And, he's, and he says, note how I did not allow the content, the cross of Christ, the content of his gospel, the cross of Christ, Christ has died for you, or the method, his unpolished oratory skills, to be compromised by making them culturally appealing. Paul didn't make anything culturally appealing to them. He didn't go, well, you know, I understand you in your Greek culture and, and all the rest of it, even though he did. He never made it culturally easy for them to take the gospel. He was unashamed of presenting a saviour who dined in a shameful way and did not feel compelled to present such a death and its power with any of the customary Greek spin. We're well aware of the word spin because it's the world in which we live. Depending on what paper you read or what particular um, side of politics you're in, you're always going to find that those who are against, say, the right wing will always look at everything the right are doing and spin it so that the left look good. And vice versa. You know? So whether you're a mirror reader or a sun reader, you're going to get the spin of whatever happened where whatever happened the day before is given in the light of what they, of what they know their reader wants to hear. Paul never did that. He didn't pander to their culture. He did this so that the any converts will be genuinely born from the power of God. In other words, it, he, he didn't make it easy for them to believe. Why? So that they can identi I genuinely identify as a work of God. If you believe that in the midst of the culture you're in, then that's God and nothing else. And for many of us, if not all of us, we can understand that if it wasn't for the grace of God, the spirit of God, which we're talking about today, coming into my life, I would never have come to the conclusions I have today so I can be here. Despite of the culture, God speaks to us. Paul was aware how counterculture the gospel is. We've, we've heard them speaking about that in the first chapter. To the Greeks, it was, it was foolishness. And to the Jews, it was foolishness because where's the power? Where's the wisdom? It never appealed to them. To summarize, he did not distort the gospel in any way which would have given the culture an easy way of accepting it. And again, for us, as much as we want to speak in a way in which our culture understands, we likewise have a challenge to make sure that when we present the gospel, we do it in such a way that we don't bend it so that the culture finds it easier to accept. 
So in verses 6 to 10 now, Paul then elaborates that even though he did not use wisdom such as would appeal to the Greeks, he did nonetheless use wisdom. It wasn't like he was just chatting gibberish and then saying, well, let the Spirit of God interpret. Obviously, he will go into this a little bit later on in his letter. He used wisdom to communicate the gospel, but not a wisdom that they were accustomed to. Paul could not proceed with them in the tradition that is known as faith-seeking understanding. Because this is something that the mature believer would only appreciate. Faith-seeking understanding is not, it's the tradition of like, now that I believe these things, let me now explore what it is I actually believe. Why did Christ have to die on the cross? Why couldn't God just forgive him, forgive all humankind from heaven? Why that way? Why at that time? Hebrews 6, 1 to 3 tells us, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ to be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. In other words, even the writer of Hebrews tells us that there are elementary things which we should understand that will help us to move in into maturity and not simply because we are looking for positions of leadership but simply I need to know the faith in which I stand faith in what? so we need to understand the content of the gospel we will hear this again looking forward into chapter 3 that Paul could not teach them such things because they were not ready. What an indictment on somebody that you're not ready to understand the gospel in its full expression. So as a result of that, naturally they gravitated towards using the spirit, towards because they didn't naturally gravitate towards spiritual maturity, they reverted to the earthly wisdom and tried to understand the gospel within the context of their culture. Well, this is what I already understand, so therefore I must just take these sets of facts and just ultimately interpret them in the way that my, my own culture appreciates, which, was, which is what Paul was avoiding doing in the first place. So this brings me back to my introduction. So have you also lapsed into an infancy or an extended adolescence, which is so popular today, in your own Christian walk? If you've been a believer for a little while, there's really no excuse for not understanding the gospel in a way that can not just help you, but help somebody else who might be right next to you, who needs that information. The type of person where you can't, without being quite awkward, grab a pastor or someone who has a better knowledge of the gospel in to come and say, will you speak to them? In many ways, I believe that we're all, speaking as a chaplain myself, we are all ought to be chaplains in our own places of work. 
the environments where we are, able to be a light. It's the reason why I switched to being a chaplain, because in the job I had, it was the only time I really felt alive, was when I was telling somebody about the gospel. I said, you know, let's just forget this, and let's just, just do this all the time. And do it in a way where it's not going to get in the way of the fact that I have other duties to do. We're all called to be chaplains in that regard. Or maybe you are like the Corinthian believers who thought that their worldly wisdom was also spiritual wisdom. That's an easy mistake to make. Yet by virtue of their conduct, it was very clear that they were not. Are you also looking at your own conduct recently and realizing, actually, this doesn't look like the gospel at all? And in particular, when we look at it in the context of Matthew 18, forgiven people who are forgiven. I just wish I could unpack that now and just say, this is what it is. is are we like that servant that forgets that we've been forgiven a huge debt and want to bag somebody up for, for a very small thing? Or is it that your worldly wisdom tells you that you're not that bad a person anyway? And that brings us now to where we are in 10B. The four in the, the, when you see that four, so there, there's a reason why 10B has been separated. When you see that four in 10B, it, it's, it's a clarifier, it's an explainer. For those of us who are familiar with English, that those are words that we need to hang on. Four now means, let me clarify what I just said, so the cliffhanger can be resolved. And that cliffhanger was in 10A. For the Spirit knows the things of God. And so moving into verse 11, Paul now states that the thoughts of God are not accessible to humans just as my thoughts are not accessible to you. In other words, the knowledge of God and the revelation of God are sitting with God in a place which is inaccessible to us the same way our own thoughts are not accessible to somebody else. In this sense, for a human to be able to have some comprehension of God's thoughts, they must have God's spirit, which knows these thoughts. And that's very logical. In order, in order for me to know what you are thinking, I need you to tell me what you're thinking. And this is what Paul is saying, is that we need something that's going to bring clarity to the things that we are. We need to know that God only holds. So this means that the, the knowledge that God has does not come in a way which we have direct control over. But rather comes as revelation. So how do we have 
access to this knowledge of God? Well, today there's, there's one thing is, is, is to try and get you to understand what revelation is and how revelation works. Now, being one who loves an illustration, the best I could think of was referring you to a movie that I think helps us understand. And we, we realize that there are some movies in which certain things are held back from us to a particular scene, normally towards the end, where a revelation is given that helps you to reinterpret the things you've already seen. And one particular movie that came to mind was The Sixth Sense. For those of you who haven't seen it, don't worry, it's not a, not a problem. And it's not to compel you to go and see it, but it's something that for those who may understand it, will understand that when you get the revelation that Malcolm, played by Bruce Willis, is actually a ghost, it transforms everything you've seen. So, So, no worries, no worries. It's been out too long, no apologies. If you were still within the year, I would have given you grace. It's too long. That's revelation. That's something that the filmmaker wanted to give you in order for you to fully understand the content that you've already seen. Now, the weirdest thing about Revelation is that without it, the movie would have made perfect sense. You would have just looked at this man and said, here's a man who is a psychologist who wants to help this kid who believes he sees dead people. And we would have perfectly lived without it and we could have said, great, well, you know, it was a good movie. I loved it. For the fact that he now inserts something there to say, actually... In order to fully understand this movie, you need to know who Malcolm is. And that Malcolm is not the one helping. He's the one who needs help. That's the nature of Revelation. It's not a perfect example, but it gives you a taste of what Revelation actually is. So what is revelation? How, it, it is not to say that revelation is completely incompatible with rational knowledge. Like I said, you can live without it to some extent and make some sense of life. But rather, it gives the possessor a key to which they have a better comprehension, a comprehension of the world around them and their place in it. This is why I stated earlier that God does, in fact, use the knowledge we already have, but needs to transform it into something else. So that our knowledge of him becomes more comprehensive, that we have a fuller understanding of what it means to be forgiven. So that we will forgive in a more perfect way. A simpler way of formalizing this is to state that revelation can accommodate rational thought, but rational thought cannot accommodate revelation. It works that way around. This is why Paul can look at you and 
even though you may not have a PhD or a master's or a degree or even a secondary school education, you actually have a better understanding of the world and how it is than whoever the top physicist is. If they're not a believer, that is. So if the narrator does not tell us that Bruce is a ghost, there is no way of discerning it on the basis of the evidence we are presented with. We may suspect it, but we would have no proof. So we need God to intervene and, and tell us, yes, this is the truth. Moving on to verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. In light of what we've previously stated, it becomes apparent that revelation is given to us so that we may better understand the world around us. For example, as it is Paul's mission here to show the church that the believer sitting beside them is more a brother via the spirit than the brother born of the same blood. That's the revelation. That the person beside you is more a brother than an unbelieving sibling. Wow. Verse 13, we impart these words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So having begun in the Spirit, are we now made perfect in the flesh? Which is what Paul will say in his letter to the Galatians. If we start off interpreting the world around us through the spiritual lens, we must continue to do so. To not do so is to live without that which clarifies, illuminates the story in which we live. No matter how comfortable you are in life, it should not be a distraction from what we are in Christ. And this is something I, I, I was listening to somebody else talking about, not necessarily related to this passage, but again, the problem for us in the West is that life can be so comfortable that there is really no desire to kind of move forward. There is no passion for heaven and Again, and all the issues that come with that. Again, rightly wanting to make the world a better place, but realizing that only God can really make it the way it ought to be made. So we do what we can, but at the same time, I don't want to make that to be a distraction from that which lays ahead of me. We see in scripture that people prefer to make up their own versions of the story, which is the tragedy in which they live. So they choose to interpret the world through their own preferences. So even though people without such revelation have enough to live on, they also suppress, as we hear from Romans 1, and distort the grace of God's natural revelation. As I said before, it's enough to live on, but it's not what they ought to be living on. It's not sufficient for believers to live without that revelation. It would be a lie. It's like going back and watching The Sixth Sense and saying, I don't believe he's a ghost. You can't put that genie back in the bottle. You should and ought to be seeing the world through that. 
or otherwise we'll be suppressing the knowledge and the revelation that God has given us. To not know that Malcolm Crow is a ghost does the story harm and invariably blinkers us to what is really going on. Is he the one helping or the one being helped, for example? This is why the writer in Hebrews states in Hebrews 6, 4-8, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared the Holy Spirit, that which brings a revelation, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, to then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they have crucified once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him to, to contempt, you see, to your own harm. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. This is a, 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 a metaphor that Jesus regularly uses about, you know, like the seed dropping and the prophets likewise and that it must reap a, reap a crop. And if the Spirit of God has truly made us alive in him, what are you doing with that revelation? Are you allowing it to grow? And to permeate into all the areas of our lives? And the tragedy here is that so often when we do become saved and we do get that revelation, it normally only applies to the areas where we have problems. If we came to God because of a relational issue, then we only see him as the God who helped us to triumph in our relationships. But yet my business and my career choices, all those things can go untouched. Because there's no problems there. It doesn't need the transformation of the gospel. And therein lies the tragedy. Is that we can only really see a, a, the usefulness of the Spirit of God and its revelation in the areas where we really feel Humble. Which is not really brave at all. It's just to accept the logic of your own situation. And then we turn to verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, Paul states that this is a work of the Holy Spirit, not merely a work of natural reason. So here we are in the negative area of Paul's argument. The non-spiritual will never be able to comprehend these things. You will be smarter than that person if you have received the Spirit of God. In God's economy, obviously. Those without the Spirit of God are unable to comprehend his thoughts as they will not align their natural human thoughts with his. Verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. How do we unpack this one? If you are truly thinking God's thoughts after him, then you really are exempt because of obedience. You're exempt because you are in line with God. You've escaped the wrath to come. 
This text also reveals the constraints of scriptures like Matthew 7. Oh, you're not allowed to judge if you're a believer. Actually, there are constraints to that. Because we are employed not to judge, it doesn't mean that no judgments can be made, especially by believers. So there is good grounds to evaluate a person's ideas or behavior to prove how much it falls in line with the revealed will of God. So as a believer looking to another believer, church discipline exists for the very reason that if I've received that revelation and I believe that you also have received that revelation, then there really is specific conduct we must be in. Or else our versions of the gospel do not really align. And I have to challenge you on the basis of, and I have to stand to be challenged myself, that whether I really have received that revelation and am I being obedient to it. For who, in verse 16 now, has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, note that we, have the mind of Christ. As an apostle, Paul was aware of the authority that was given to him in order to build up the church of God. And so it is that the mind of God is revealed by what the apostle has declared. Please note that there is no such apostles after that. So the we is actually a reference to the apostles. We have the mind of God. In other words, we have established the revealed will of God in Scripture. There are no such apostles today. Though there are apostles as such, but there are none with a capital A, I would say. The mind of God has been revealed through those who were his chosen in the age in which he was building the church. And we have the mind of God, which is Paul's way of saying, I'm trying to teach you the right way. So what do we run away with here? Well, where are you with these things that I've, we've been talking about this morning? Is your wisdom being transformed by the Spirit of God? Are you allowing that revelation to come and tweak that which you already know into something that is better? We have seen how God's revelation, once allowed to, to flow through our lives, is able to transform what we know into something even better. Even if it is seeing through a glass darkly, it's sight still. The gospel is not just something that we can be of benefit for the future, but it's actually supposed to transform our view of the kingdom now. That is not some afterthought, yeah, when I die, it's really a comfort when I go to funerals. But now, how I live my life now. It's also worth noting here the history of abuse that this scripture has endured. Many have used this text as the grounds and justifications for all manner of pseudo-spiritual eccentricities. And it would appear that they are well-versed to do so when you read prophets like Ezekiel and, you know, and him lying on his side for a number of days and then wearing a frying pan on his head. Yet, in context, this text is all about the cross of Christ and not about us receiving some new revelation and some new gift where we bark like dogs. 
or take some new spiritual blessing, which again has been reserved for our time, some new revelation against, hence why I go back to the we. We have already shown you the revealed will of God. There's nothing more to add to that. So people have used it to justify, well, if you know and you have the spirit, then you know the things that I'm doing are right. And no doubt many from Pentecostal and charismatic backgrounds have found themselves on the wrong side of such a wrong interpretation of that scripture. So there is a challenge here to enhance our sense of community in light of the gospel. If we're not careful, we would use our own cultural context to make this into something about emboldening our individualism or develop our intellectual mind to create yet another rationalized God or even just another pseudo-spiritual trend. This really is all about the cross of Christ. Or we look at ourselves and the people that are gathered as our families. We are gathered by a great benefactor. The greatest benefactor this world has ever known. And that we have this in common, that we have received the grace at the cost of his son. His son has commanded that we receive this sacrifice in gratitude. But this gratitude which we should naturally have should also develop a passion for those things which he has a passion for too, which is to love the Lord, thy God, with all thy strength, thy heart, thy mind, and your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We are to follow those commands with all our heart. For those of you who are aware, on Wednesday was the beginning of Lent. Traditionally, those, especially in the high churches, follow through with after Pancake Tuesday or Shrove Tuesday, that they then give up something in their process of 40 days towards Easter. Maybe, as part of application, you want to start to curb the culture that you're allowing into your life for a while as you've just come to that point where you say, I want to better understand the cross. It's not something I naturally do, but something I'm compelled to do by virtue of this is the week where people are starting to give up stuff. Sometimes through some weird religious notion that has no real spiritual basis, but yet for those who have the spirit, you might say, yes, I do really need to start curbing the culture that I'm allowing into my life so that I might see the cross more clearly. And maybe again, you might want to do that. Curb your social media time. Curb what you watch. And say, Lord, I had that revelation, but it's getting distorted by the things I'm watching, the things I'm doing, the people I'm associating with. Maybe you want to do that this Lent season. So I leave that with you. And I leave that with myself. Let us go and sin no more. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the things you have revealed to us, and Father, for the fact that there is indeed revelation. 
If there's one thing there, Lord God, I pray that we walk away with the fact that there is indeed a revelation that has been given to us because of the Spirit is working in this world. And for those of us who have received it, Lord God, there is things that we need to do with that gift that you've given us, dear Lord Father, that knowledge you've given us, that, that, that gift of understanding the things that are to come. So Lord, we just pray that you will unpack um, again for us those things, dear Lord Father, that we ought to be doing. Again, maybe we will consider taking up a time where we just want to pause and, and maybe have a deeper times of reflection, you know, as we maybe cut off from social media, cut off from various things that are distractions, have, have been great influences in our lives, and, and, and maybe just try to take more time to look at the gospel, look at scripture, maybe pick up a devotional book that, that will help us to recenter ourselves and say, Lord, I want to make use of this revelation you've given me. I want to move on into maturity. I want to be able to, 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 to not want to just tap somebody else to, to, to come in and, and, and help defend the faith that I believe in. But I want to have that faith for myself and, and be able to just channel it and, and be a vessel to be used. To be a chaplain in my own environment, in my community, in my workplace, amongst my family. So Lord, my prayer is, 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 is that we would all do so. And Lord Father, even beyond Easter, beyond our remembrance of the cross, dear Lord Father, that we will continue to put the cross central, Lord, wherever we feel, dear Lord God, to hold somebody up in our hearts, that we will remember, like Matthew 18 reminds us to do, to remember that we have been forgiven much. It's only by grace I'm saved. So therefore, help me to live out the gospel in a way that is pleasing to you in gratitude, in love, in kindness, in generosity. Not forsaking the church because it's the people that ultimately will outlast every, everything that we see around us. It will outlast the UK. It will outlast the United States. It will outlast China. And it will outlast the Lord Father to the point where whatever great cultures will, are yet to come and dominate. And so this is truly their Lord Father, the people of God who I will live for in into, into eternity. Help me to appreciate that and make it of value to me. Make it something I will give up and give sacrificially to because it is worth it, because of that eternal goal and because of the death of the person that made it so valuable in the first place. So, Father, thank you for this time that you've given us to reflect on what it means to have revelation brought to us. And may we run with it, dear Lord God, in a way that will help us. This week, this month, this year, to the end of my life, if you should tarry. Have your way in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.